So, understand where we're going? Well, the big push all the time on preachers is you've got to apply your sermons. You've got to apply the passage. The application is the critical element. And there is a truth in it in the sense that uh, sermons mustn't be uh, lectures in the sense of kind of oral commentaries. The activity of preaching is a very different activity to the activity uh, of writing, and it's a very different activity to the activity of even lecturing. Uh, We preach for purpose, and the ultimate purpose we are consistently preaching for is response. So Paul can say in Acts 20.20 that he went around from house to house, publicly, privately, Paul was preaching repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's always going to be the response we're looking for. Now, there can be more specific forms of repentance and more specific forms of trust that we have. So we can talk about praying, because that is trust in God, or we can talk about stopping putting to death certain things in our lives, because that's repentance. But the goal all the time is repentance and faith. And we're not just giving information. Uh, that is not the activity. I'm a great believer in expository preaching. Uh, it's the way to go. I've no doubt about it. However, one of its dangers is it turns into expository oral commentary. And that is not preaching. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a necessary fault of young graduates from Moore College. Uh, a necessary fault because it's an indication that you have benefited from your years here in college having the Word of God lectured to you. Uh, it would be very hard if every lecture was a sermon. This would be a very long four years if that were the case. Uh, they need to be lectures and your mind gets filled um, uh, with the, the, the wonders of God's Word that you want to share with people, which is fantastic. But you have to learn how to repackage what you can share with people orally. In a, in a different context than the lecture theatre. Um, uh, and the, the structure and function of what you're doing in teaching Christians God's word and teaching non-Christians God's word for that matter. And so immediately you get told you've got to apply your sermons, you've got to, you've got to work out the application. And I, I want to say to you, I don't believe in application. Is the, uh, John Woodhouse doesn't believe in illustrations and I don't believe in application. So together, John and I are great preachers. We just don't fit into it. I mean, this is partly semantic, but behind the the semantics, there there are ideas that I'm struggling with, and ideas are expressed in words, so it's very hard to work out what are the right words to express the idea I'm capturing on. Went to the dictionary, and uh, here is what I came across in terms of application. There are four different definitions of application I saw on my computer dictionary, uh, the Oxford Dictionary. Uh, They all had to do with things that are external to us. But the way in which we use the word application was the uh, second form of uh, the definition, and there we are. The application is the action of putting something into operation. The application of general rules to particular cases. Massage has a far-reaching medical applications or a practical use or relevance. This principle has no application to the present case. 
And so it's taking hold of something here and showing its use there. It's, it's, it's that kind of, it's external to the thing itself that you're talking about because what you want to talk about is over here, this application is the concept that we generally are thinking. And what I want to actually say is I don't believe in that. I believe in preaching the implication. That is the conclusion that can be drawn from something. Although it's not explicitly stated, an implication doesn't work for me either because sometimes it is explicitly stated. The implication is that no one person at the bank is responsible. Yeah, that's like one of our banks, isn't it? A likely consequence of something. You see, many people are unaware of the implications such reform or her victory had important political implications. Implications is much more internal to the, the scriptures itself. Application is much more external. See, take gambling. If you're going to preach a sermon on gambling, which passage of scripture would you use? Because it's not mentioned in the Bible. So what we then do is we find passages and then draw from those passages the application that you shouldn't gamble. Although that uh, uh, very, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, Presbyterian theologian in America, John Frame. John Frame actually thinks, it, he, he actually speaks and says gambling is all right. Okay, there's nothing wrong with gambling. It's one of the very few conservative Christians I've ever seen argue that case. Most of us would say, no, gambling is wrong. But gambling's not in the scriptures. What, what we've done is, you may say, drawn implications from the scriptures, but we do more than draw implications from the scriptures. We then move to kind of stating and commanding that people shouldn't gamble. See, I, I preached in Singapore some many years ago. Uh, yeah, it was a Singaporean church, it was in Malaysia. Um, and they asked me to expand Revelation, and so I did. The first two studies were on Revelation 1. The end of it, I had several of the elders come to me and say, you know, there's no applications. You're not preaching well at all. Well, that's because Revelation 1 doesn't ask us to do anything. It tells us what... I mean, the closest it comes, Revelation 1, is it says that uh, you get blessing from reading this book. But... It's about what happened to John, what he saw, who Jesus was. They were quite unhappy. I went and spoke to the elder of all the elders in that church, a lovely old man who I knew here in Australia when he was doing his PhD in chemistry, but he moved on as a professor over there or something. And I mentioned it, and he roared with laughter at me and at them. He said, yes, they're, they're Christians, but they're still Confucius in their thinking. So unless you've got rules and regulations, you're not actually saying anything. That's part of the problem. Because when you preach, people remember the applications and forget the passage from which you drew it or the logic by which you got from the passage to the application. So they go home saying, I'm not to, pre I'm not to gamble. But there's no verse that says it. There's no command of scripture that says it. It's something that I've drawn from other passages of scriptures that are not even discussing it. And yet that's the bit they remember. 
uh, one of the problems we had in the healing ministry was this. Uh, one of our preachers, a very fine exegete of the scriptures, and preached very carefully what the text of scripture says. But in order to fulfil the kind of culture of the healing service, he then always told of a healing episode, connected somehow to the passage he was speaking on. So, you know, talking about a lame person being healed, and then he'd give you an illustration of someone who had been crippled and been healed through the laying on of hands, etc. What he noticed after many years of doing it, and what I certainly noticed was, no one remembered the Bible passage ever. They only ever remembered the, the event of this healing, this bio, that person being cured of cancer, this person having their headache solved, this person. Always the illustration of the healing, never the scriptures that lay behind it. That is, when your preaching centres on the application, you do wind up into legalism. You do wind up with the concrete overwhelming the theology and the truth that is being spoken of. You do wind up with um, the problems of legalism in the ways in which people then read the scriptures. Because we're no longer interested in what they're saying. We're only interested in what they tell us to do or to stop doing. And you wind up with the Mishnah. That is, the, the history of Jewish preaching and teaching were the rabbis. Uh, the rabbis worked out the applications of the law to the situations of life today. For remember, at the time of Jesus, Moses had been dead for more than a thousand years, heading up more to two thousand years. And the kinds of things Moses was talking about didn't quite fit the urban context in which Jerusalem was living. And so how do you get from what Moses said to the people in the wilderness to what we should do here in the city of Jerusalem? And so the case studies of the lawyers were passed down from rabbi to rabbi. Some years ago we saw a lovely Jewish girl converted at the New South Wales Uni. Um, uh, she was uh, the daughter of a very prominent Jewish family and uh, it caused a terrific furor. Um, uh, and uh, we uh, got, we, we had a meeting with her rabbi um, in one of the big synagogues and uh, the thing that was the final persuasion for her was Isaiah 53. So this rabbi uh, did a Bible study for us on Isaiah 53. Um, the girl, myself, a couple of our colleagues, and the rabbi sat around a table for two or three hours. Very nice man. Uh, agnostic, of course. Um, he said most of his congregation were atheists, if not agnostics, but there were some who still believed in God, um, which is kind of bizarre when you first meet up with Jewish rabbis and they're like that. He spoke for 40, 50 minutes on the question of who was the servant upon whom the sins of the world were laid, etc. Who was? And what he did was say, Rabbi so-and-so, so-and-so said it was this person. Rabbi so-and-so says this person. Rabbi so-and-so said... And for 50 minutes we heard all the different rabbinic traditions 
as to who the suffering servant was. Was it Moses? Was it David? Was it uh, Aaron? Was it and, and which rabbi said this and which one didn't, etc. We got right down to the end. He still hadn't told us what he believed, let alone what Isaiah meant. He just told us what all the rabbis said. Uh, when we pressed him and said, well, what do you think? He said, oh, I think it's a later insertion that comes from post-exile writings and it's not part of Isaiah at all. Why go through the whole exercise of telling us what everybody else tells us when you don't even believe it's part of the Bible in the first place? Because that is the Jewish way of understanding. The scriptures themselves are not, uh, do not explain. It's what the rabbis say about the scriptures. Now that's part of, part of what is meant by the end of the Sermon of the Mount where it says Jesus taught with authority and not as their scribes. The character of Jesus' teaching and the way in which he handled the word of God dramatically, radically different. He didn't say, Rabbi Ben so-and-so said this. He said, I say unto you. He didn't even go the way of the prophet. Thus says the Lord. He said, I say unto you. The stark authority of Jesus just speaking God's word directly uh, stood out as a, a different way of preaching, a different way of understanding. He actually said what the words meant. So you read a commandment like you shall not kill. He doesn't apply you shall not kill. I think he draws out the implication of what it means to say you shall not kill. Namely... That means you should love your neighbour. He draws out the implications of what it means to say you shall not commit adultery. Uh, that means you will live in a sexual purity. He's not adding to it. He's not applying it. He's explaining its real meaning. He's looking for the implications of the passage rather than trying to work out how to apply it with concrete specifics. However, concrete specifics can be used, applications if you like, can be used, but I think they're used to illustrate things. That's the trouble with the illustrations, is sometimes people remember the illustrations and forget the point they're illustrating. Because Concrete thinking is an easier thing than abstract thinking. So you've got this abstract principle, you're trying to help people grasp this abstract principle, so you use an illustration, and that's the bit they go away remembering. So you'll remember about my rabbi friend trying to explain Isaiah 53, but you won't remember what I was trying to illustrate by that concrete. And so the more you deal with concrete applications, try and uh, illustrate with applications, the more dangerous it becomes. See, why is it that we are opposed to gambling? Why should we be opposed to gambling? Uh, I'm not sure we should. I'm sure we should be thoroughly committed to loving our neighbour and utterly committed to generosity rather than self-centredness and completely opposed to materialism. If you are those things, you won't gamble. Because <laughs> you can't gamble without being materialistic. You can't gamble and love your neighbour at the same time. And you certainly won't gamble if, you, if the, your driving motivation is generosity. 
because it's all about taking. So gambling is just an impossibility for these other three. So I can illustrate these three things with gambling, but if I apply the Bible by saying, therefore you shall not gamble, I've made something the Bible didn't think worth talking about as the point of what the Bible is saying. It's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible's saying, love your neighbour. The Bible's saying, don't be greedy, be generous. The Bible is saying, they're the important things. Gambling is but an illustration of those things, a negative illustration of those things. But once I start seeing the whole point of my sermon is going to be about gambling, so my introductions about gambling and the wickedness of gambling and the fact that Australia is built on gambling and the kind of conclusion I'm going to come to is therefore we must stop gambling or therefore we must oppose putting horse races on the, on, on the sales of the Opera House which was built from gambling. Uh, you didn't know that by the way. The, the Sydney Opera House wasn't built from taxation, it was built from gambling. We, they created uh, the new super lotteries and they collected all the money from gambling to build the Opera House. So when people object to the Opera House being used to promote gambling, there is a certain kind of inconsistent irony that's involved in this process. Not that I'm saying we should have put horse racing up there. I'm opposed and always have been opposed to all forms of gambling. I think it's a wicked evil thing uh, and it's a, it's a dreadful thing. I see the social consequences of it. And I'm dead set against gambling, but I don't think the Bible is. It's not even mentioned. It's not discussed anywhere. I've drawn certain principles from the Bible to this particular issue. But it's an issue that the Bible doesn't address. And so I've got to be careful in saying, well, the Bible is against gambling. No, the Bible is for love. The Bible is for generosity. The Bible is against materialism. An illustration of that, a negative, is gambling. And so... I'm not for the application. Furthermore, we're interested in the preacher preaching the word of God. That's where we're coming from, right? But as preachers preaching the word of God, we've got to remember what's been left out of that. What has been left out of that picture? The audience. The audience, yes, the hearer, right? So you never preach. You preach to people. You never teach the Bible. You teach the Bible to people. The hearer is very important. The trouble is the preacher stands between the word of God and the hearer. And it's very easy for the preacher to become the kind of new priest. And, so, and it's not just alone. There's a whole series of filters that the hearer has between the word of God and himself, of which the preacher is one, the traditions we have is another, the commentators, they're another, uh, the experts and their advice is another, the church can be another. There's all kinds of filters that prevent people from properly hearing the word of God. And the preacher can be one of the filters that stops people hearing the word of God, even though the aim is to teach the word of God. But we can so teach the word of God that people actually don't hear it. What they hear is our applications, our socio-political, psycho-babble kind of uh, view of the world, which we think we've derived from the Bible, we may have, we may not have, it will come across the same because we've attached it loosely to Bible verses. And so we actually stop people hearing the word of God rather than helping them. Mediators are very dangerous. Because you see, 
What's wrong about that? And it's really wrong. Just get rid of all the, the... I mean, you're happy to say the other ones are wrong, I presume, but just get back to us, the preacher. Uh, uh, the expert and the commentator, I may say, I find uh, commonly used to. Uh, in general, over the years, I would rarely ever quote anybody in a sermon. Whether I've read them or not, I don't quote them. I don't read them to quote them. There's no point saying, well, Professor Bruce says this verse means X, Y, Z. Uh, that's, that's being rabbinic. If it means X, Y, Z, say it. If it doesn't mean X, Y, Z, don't say it. But don't blame Freddie Bruce for saying it. You either believe it or you don't believe it. That is, the kind of issues of plagiarism are an irrelevance in the pulpit. We're not there. People are there to hear the word of God, not to hear what Freddie Bruce thinks the word of God. It, it's, it's all caught up in our postmodern deconstructionism and the, the idea that the word of God doesn't mean anything itself. It only means what the interpreter means. Uh, it's, it's a complete failure. We do not interpret the Bible. The word interpretation has changed meaning in the 20th century. Um, uh, it, it used to mean comprehension. It now means putting your slant upon it. So that is a. So I went to Macbeth in London some years ago, and the Macbeth was given a particular interpretation. It was set not in Scotland, but set in Russian uh, revolutions. And so the three witches at the beginning of it uh, were three nurses in the uh, Russian Revolutionary Army. And so we had this interpretation of Macbeth which uh, I didn't find in the slightest helpful. Um, uh, but whether I find it helpful or not, you see, it's the, it's the reader imposing their view on what the author was saying. That concept of interpretation is a late 20th century concept. If you just look up a good dictionary, you'll see when that concept came in 1960s, 70s. Uh, you've grown up with it as a concept, but when the uh, reformers were discussing the interpretation of the Bible, they were not discussing our imposing our views on the scriptures. They were discussing how you comprehend. How you now comprehension used to be a normal thing. I don't know if they do comprehension tests anymore in English in schools, um, but uh, under deconstructionist theory, uh, comprehension tests are impossible. Uh, so whether they've got rid of them out of the HSC, I don't know. Did you still have them when you did the HSC? I mean, I'm so old, I didn't even do the HSC. I did the leaving certificate. That was a wonder. Never mind. You don't remember comprehension tests? You did? You didn't? Yes? Yes. Yes. You still had them? Good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's called reading. You know, it's a, it's, that's the, the purpose of the exercise is to learn how to read right, so that you'll understand what someone's saying to you in the printed word, but seeing the author has no control over the printed word, and it's, it's all. But the classic illustration is 1 Corinthians 15, 13, uh, 15, 3, uh, that we deliver to your first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died is a fact. For our sins is the interpretation. According to the scriptures, is the basic understanding of that interpretation, where you get that interpretation from. So if you want to understand what it means for our sins, you go back into what the Old Testament says dying for sins would mean. So that explains to you 
what is taking place. That is, the Bible is the interpretation of the facts. That's why you never have to interpret the Bible. Because, I mean, it's, it is the interpretation. Uh, it, it's, it's bizarre to interpret the interpretation. Um, so, come back to the preacher. All these experts are getting in the way of people hearing the word of God. We, the preacher, mustn't. Because what we've got to remember is the word of God is actually about the hearer. The word of God is directly involves the hearer. It speaks to the hearer and it speaks of the hearer. And indeed, the preacher is not outside the word of God unless they're unbelievers. For we too are in the word of God, under the word of God, with them. So it's not that there is this external static thing called the Bible, that, which I won't even touch, that, you know, it's over there, that has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with you, and I'm going to throw it in there, find something, and then give it to you, but it's still sitting over here, unrelated to you. You are... This book is about you. It's about God, it's about Jesus, but it's about you. It's about me. And as the preacher, it's about us as well. So, the Word of God addresses us. But, the other thing you've got to remember about the Word of God is that as it addresses us, in itself is not stationary. That is, it's a living, active Word of God to which we have to give answer. So that, that passage in Hebrews 4 that talks about the living, active Word of God, very important passage, because amongst other things, no creature is hidden from his sight. You move in Hebrews 4, 12 about the Word of God to God. The, the two verses just flow one to the other. And actually, you're answerable to it. So, so he says uh, in Hebrews 4, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is actively involved in reading you while you are reading it. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is not a passive thing that we control. It is an active thing that overwhelms us. It's a different environment. There is no other book like it. That's because of the dual authorship of the Word of God, namely God and the human author. And so when Paul speaks about his preaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he thanks God that you heard from us, not just the Word of men, but as it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you who believe. So here you're listening to Paul, but you're not listening to Paul. You're listening to God. And when you're listening to God, God is at work in you. And so the kind of concept that we have, you see, the word of God being so active and living and dynamic, brings into play another very important element, namely the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit writes the word of God, and the Holy Spirit uses the preacher's word and the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearer. So earlier in 1 Thessalonians, no, later in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, we read, Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, we, you have no need for anyone to write to you, 
For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. That is, the word of God is under the control of the Holy Spirit who wrote it and who uses it and uses the preacher to change the hearts and minds of the hearer. There's no other literature like this. As soon as you move to literary theories to understand how you preach, you're wrong. Because all literary theories are built upon the word of man. But this is not the word of man. This is the word of God by which the world was created, who became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's that kind of character. Just that it's a unique thing. Certainly it's used. It's written in the language of men. Uh, but, and a few times in the language of women, there's a few passages. I've just preached a series on all the parts of the Bible written by women. It's not a long series. It was a slightly strange series. But never mind, I just tried because I heard this liberal woman who had cut out every part of the Bible except those bits written by women. So I thought, well, what would be left? And so I then preached through the series. Anyway, uh, uh, here you see in 1 Thessalonians 1, you see, we thank God, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labour of love, steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So it's the word of God is more than word. The word of God is the word of God. And so if we're going to preach, we're going to preach... The word of God. So 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 11 says, Let him who speaks, speaks the, 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 the logia tathiu, the, the, the oracles of God. So what comes out of our mouths is to be God's word itself. So that we can actually stand and say, thus says the Lord. Um, we don't need to say that in a congregation that understands what we're doing in terms of preaching the Bible. We are telling people what God says. And so I don't need to apply it because God is applying it. He's applying it to the hearts of the listener. He's at work in those who believe. I just need to be very faithful to it. Now, in being faithful to it, there are diversities of genres that we have available to us. So sometimes in the scriptures there are commands. And to be faithful to the scriptures, I preach the commands. So, uh, do not be conformed to this world. But And then there's a, a passive command, which is a very interesting idea. But be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Passive commands are fascinating things, like be filled with the spirit. How do you command a passive? It's, it's, a, it's a trick. But there is a direct command... Do not be conformed to this world. I don't have to apply that. It, it is, it's an imperative. It is applicable just in the saying of it. I don't know what application means over and above telling you not to be conformed to the world. I can illustrate it and say, well, we are being conformed to the world more and more. You see it in this, you see it in that, and I can go through how we are being conformed to the world. 
But they are illustrations of the command and the danger of the illustrations, they then become the new law. So that people think actually the passage was all around the fact that we uh, shouldn't drive uh, motor cars made from Japan because that was the illustration he used, being conformed to the world. And see these bizarre Christian concepts as to what we do or don't do because of the illustrations uh, becoming the applications which become the message of the sermon. The message of the sermon must be, do not be conformed to the world. That's got to be the message. And the logic behind that is, therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, do not be conformed to this world. So I, I, I really need to help people understand the mercies of God so that they will be motivated to obey the command of God concerning their relationship with the world. That's much, much more important than me giving applications that people can go away and take hold of. Say nothing of the fact that I apply it, and, you know, it works for everybody, except if you live in Northern Ireland. So Peter walks out saying, well, that was a great sermon for them. Because, you know, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't follow this, I don't follow that, I don't do that, so therefore I'm free. I, he didn't get me today, you know. All his arrows were spent and I ducked just at the right time. Where... Everybody is being told this because we are all in danger of this. That's the nature of our sinfulness. So there are some commands, some imperatives, and they are eminently preachable for us. Uh, not all commands, though, can be preached as what Christians should do. Uh, uh, the command to go and get the donkey so Jesus could ride into Jerusalem. Right? doesn't mean that we've all got to go out looking for donkeys. Uh, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Can we say the Bible is obvious like that? Yes, Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says, you tithe, mint and cumin, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law, justice and righteousness and truth. Right? Nowhere in the law is that distinction made. That's just something that any normal person reading the law could work out and should work out. It can be held accountable for not having worked out that there are certain things that are really important and there are other things that, while they're significant, they're not of that importance, that, that uh, concern. Now, you should be able to read the scriptures and see those things. For Jesus holds the scribes and Pharisees accountable for their failure to, do, to see the difference. So, you need to read the scriptures to see its implications. Now, sometimes there is behaviour that you can teach, which is, prepay is the Greek word, fitting, appropriate, consistent with sound teaching. Titus 2, verse 1, uh, where Paul tells Titus, to teach things that are prepay with sound doctrine. And then he speaks to the older men, the older women, the younger women, the, old, the younger men, and then to slaves, and gives moral descriptions that are things consistent with sound teaching. Now, for us, that's easier. We just say what 
Titus, I say Timothy, it's Titus 2 verse 1, uh, we just say those things that Paul told Titus to tell us. That's a straightforward kind of thing. But there may be other doctrine, other uh, things that you could talk about that are consistent with sound doctrine. So I think gambling is an issue, uh, not gambling, is an issue that is consistent with sound doctrine. Uh, the sound doctrine of our materialism and creation and of, of love and of generosity, I can talk about that topic. I just must be careful about saying I'm telling you what God said because he doesn't and I mustn't add to the word of God any more than I mustn't take it away from it. Sometimes the reason you're told something like 2 Peter is very strong in this is so that you will remember and never forget. And so sometimes our preaching is to remind people that they will not forget. I was talking to one of our graduates the other day, a man who's retired and he's working uh, a little bit in Presbyterian churches these days in his retirement. Uh, and he said these Presbyterian churches that he's working amongst are still suffering the consequences of liberalism of yesteryear before the Uniting Church came. And he said, it's staggering. He said, I thought the Anglican churches I was working in were pretty poor and run down. But we've never gone through the harrowing experience of having generations taught liberalism. And so these churches, he says, they're, they're, they are completely destroyed. He said, there's only a handful of believers left in them. The others are there for cultural reasons, and they're all old and dying. And it's a dreadful consequence, he said, and it made me be thankful once more for the fact that week in, week out, year in, year out, the Bible is taught and read in the churches in which we've been practising. Now, it happens to be Presbyterian and Anglican. Go to another place, it's the exact reverse. The, the label didn't matter. Right? Uh, it's just, you, you mustn't underestimate the, the health of your teeth that flows from regular, consistent brushing. But you, you, you don't normally find brushing as the most exciting moment of the day. Although, it's one of the little joys of life, I think. But I put it in the category of little joys of life. I don't put it in meaning of existence kind. And so sometimes just turning up week in, week out, hearing the Bible read, daily reading the Bible, actually has a profound long-term effect that you need to not underestimate. And Paul, Peter is very concerned that we remember these great things. And he puts into our minds the memory of these things. If it's good for the apostle to do that, it's good for us to preach that. We don't have to preach an application that has nothing to do with what Peter was talking about. It's just the wrong thing. There we go. I've gone enough on this. That's the kind of area my brain is trying to rattle around to move myself back into trying to help other people know how to preach. Um, uh, it's a useful exercise for another reason too. That is, as I do it, I think, oh, gee, Philip, that sermon series I preached there wasn't really good, was it? Because uh, when, you when you're preaching in unconscious competence, you sometimes slip into unconscious incompetence. You don't know it. Do you want to ask questions about this topic? Say anything, comment, come back to me about any of it, and then we'll go over anything else. Yes, Paul? Um, something that you said, Philip, is um, in 